The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 74 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize all opinions expressed in the show on my own and not that my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or resort to my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before I get started, I want to remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to this Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, good evening, everybody. It's uh, Monday night at RSA week, and... What a big week it is, all right? Lots of excitement this week in, in the industry. This is one of the most anticipated events in the cybersecurity industry that happens every year out in beautiful San Francisco, California. And uh, we're not going to be there this year. We got some other things going on. Uh, but, uh, you know, someday I'd love to broadcast live from one of these RSA uh, conferences, and that's definitely uh, something that we have on the agenda that we've been talking about. Um, so that might be coming soon. But as usual, it seems that, so many individuals in the industry go to this thing. I mean, so many people are be at this conference. I think it's tens of thousands of people uh, actually uh, go for a variety of different reasons. And uh, obviously, some people go to the conference to attend, you know, the keynote spe uh, speeches. And, and, and there's a lot of great people talking out there. There's some, you know, the true professionals of, of the industry. There's a lot of breakout sessions. There's various seminars going on during the week. I think there's like 700 sessions in four days. <laughs> I mean... It's, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot of information. I mean, if, if, whatever you're looking for out there in the security space, it, I'm sure you can find something that uh, is related to the topic that you're interested in. So, and then there, there, there are many corporate executives that rent these conference rooms out there for the entire event, and then they just run these nonstop meetings, nonstop, right? They, they just get all the vendors they're currently using. They have them all come in as, mother, as well as the sort of future uh, vendors uh, that they, they're thinking about working with, and they engage in this non-stop uh, selling and problem-solving activity. So a lot of these vendors too, they host rooms and they just do you know, demos and presentations and dinners and special events out there at the clubs. I mean, then there's the VC and angel investors, they're out there too. You know, they're not gonna miss out on the action because that's where everybody is. They're always talking to the entrepreneurs and looking for the next unicorn, I'm sure, right? So big money deals going down, big money deals going down. Lots and lots of deals being made over drinks and dinner. And then I suspect that there's just some people going out there for the party, you know, just to hang out all week and have some fun and, and see some people. I mean, I know it's hard to believe, but 
I think there's some people out there who just like to have a good time. And uh, I suppose there's really nothing wrong with that either. So in a lot of ways, it's a quiet week in the industry because everyone is meeting in person out in California. And so trying to get in touch with people this week proves to be really difficult. I mean, you send an email and you get crickets, right? Because everyone's actually in the moment in the physical world for a change. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. I mean, you know, uh, it's not bad that people are in the moment talking to people physically instead of logically or over the internet and through emails and so on and so forth. So we'll get back to the RSA conference in, in just a bit. I want to talk about last week's episode for just a few minutes. And, and for the first time ever, my business partner and co-founder of Task Force 7 was able to join us on air. Former Secret Service agent Andy Benillo came on the show with our frequent guests, uh, Tom Pagler, who was also co-host the show often, to talk about a variety of different current events that are getting a lot of attention in the news. And we had a great show. We had a great show. It was in, the, in the first segment, we spoke all, all about the elections again and the security around the election systems. You know, the Washington Post was reporting that the, the Democrats are going to be making election security a campaign issue. So we did some analysis on that. And uh, look, I've said it before, in my opinion, this is, you know, one of the most important issues of our time. And we're going to continue to cover it on the show because I just, you know, I think it's, I think it's so important for us to bring as much attention to this as possible. So we had a great discussion last week on this very controversial issue. Um, uh, I really enjoyed it. We also got into a, a cybercrime discussion. Uh, which we haven't done in a while, uh, which is odd because we're all former cyber crime investigators. But um, we did we did a little bit on that. We provided some analysis, some of these recent reports of the exorbitant amount of money that career cyber criminals are paying to contract out people with these special skills that they need to carry out these complex extortion attempts, and they call it sextortion. And it depends on you know what the the motive is here and what they're doing, but as well as these you know other sophisticated financial crimes that they need this help to do. So the audience really loves the analysis on the cybercrime and cybercrime always gets huge audiences, right? And so we could probably just do a cybercrime show all the time and, and, uh, and still crush it with the audience because people love to hear about these types of things that they find it very interesting. Um, and I think not a lot of people understand or know some of the things that go on in the cybercrime world and they just find it interesting and it's very educational. So and, you know, especially when you have three former agents from three of the biggest electronic crime task forces in the country, you know, giving their opinions on the issue, I think it, uh, it gets pretty good, right? So we tell it how it is, folks. And then we got into the central theme of the episode, which is the controversy around the Chinese company Huawei and, and how potential disagreements about the dangers of doing business with a company uh, that, you know, basically has been accused of spying and has been indicted in some countries, and among other things, and, and this, this threatening one of the oldest and most important intelligence alliances in the world, and that's the Five Eyes. And that's a big deal, man. So that's just another way in which the, the cybersecurity is affecting our futures. Uh, and it is a perfect example in my mind on how cybersecurity in many ways is a national threat, threat uh, security threat to the United States. And that's why uh, this show exists, is to, to, to educate people and, and bring this topic to the forefront and get great discussions and you know, um, and, and eventually uh, get much bigger uh, in terms of being able to opine on, on public policy and things like that. So uh, TF7 is, is definitely going to get much bigger in the future, folks. So we unpack it all for you. And if you haven't heard last week's episode yet, you know, take a listen when you get a chance. It's definitely worth your time. Tune in to last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. That's episode number 73 with former Secret Service agents Andy Benillo and Tom Pagler. So 
I want to give the February 2019 Encore episode another shout out. It's the, uh, it, it's what is the future of bug bounties? It's, it's a great episode. I decided to drop it last month because it was timely. We were talking about bug bounties in the industry. We talked about switching a little bit, putting out a government bug bounty. And, you know, we had the big tech companies coming in with some huge numbers on what they did in 2018. So give it a listen, folks. Just check out your favorite playback medium. Tune it right in. It's right there in your library. It should be right up front and uh, because it's, it, it's definitely um, in last week's numbers. So if you look in February episodes, you'll find it right there. That's the February 2019 Encore episode. What is the future of bug bounties on TF7 Radio? I think you're going to really enjoy the show. So... So if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to us on uh, playback. Uh, and so that's the biggest question I still get all the time. I get it all the, every week. Someone asks me, how can I listen to Task Force 7 Radio? Well, we got a new website. It's tf7radio.com. Check it out. Uh, it's not updated. I think I'm up to 67 or 68 episodes. We're on 73 or what, 74 this week, right? So... Um, I, you know, I got to get on it, right? But uh, we got a new website and there's going to be a lot of functionality coming up to that website and we're going to start interacting with our, with our audience on a very meaningful way there very soon. So that's exciting. You can get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site. Uh, it's going to get more robust. I mean, I, so I suggest you just go there and you can subscribe. Just hit the, hit the, the tab at the top right, the subscribe button, and then you can put your email address in and subscribe to the show. He also get the other 11. Now there's 11. Before there was nine, there's 10, and there's 11 different options to get your TF7 radio fixed, right? Spotify and castbox.fm are the newest ones out there right now. And we're very happy about that, folks. And so huge, you know, uh, you know, huge response uh, uh, from our, our audience, I think, because we're just everywhere. We're everywhere. You can't miss us. I mean, if you Google Task Force 7 radio, you get a whole bunch of options. They all show up there, right? Check us out. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. Subscribing is the way to go. So we have another great show for you this week. I want to introduce my good friend, guest co-host of TF7 Radio and Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Tom Pager. Tom, how are you doing this evening? Doing great, George. Thanks for having me. And another great friend of mine, guest co-host and former Secret Service agent and co-founder of Task Force 7, Mr. Andrew Benello. Welcome back to the brother. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I had a blast last week and looking forward to another great show this week. Hey, so it's the RSA conference this week, arguably the biggest security conference in the world, right? Uh, and people are talking about it all over. I mean, everyone's, you know, in the security industry is sort of in a frenzy about it this year. There's more excitement about it this year, I think, than... And in previous years, I, I, I think I just the, the buzz is just pretty incredible. Tom, I want to kick off uh, the, this segment and talk about the importance of the RSA conference. Is the conference still as important as it used to be? You know, I live out here and I always go uh, to the conference or the, uh, around the conference. I don't really attend the conference anymore. Uh, I think it's more important uh, to use the time to catch up with your friends and contacts in the industry. And I also love to read about the things the conference is talking about. Like, example, right now, I think AI is a big buzzword thing. It's just kind of fun to see what's going on. It brings all security awareness around. But honestly, at this point, the conference is uh, almost too big, too much going on. I don't think it's worth the, the, the time and the money. It's the events around the conference that are, are, are good for me. And honestly, this week, um, I'm not going to be up there the whole time. I, I got two days I've scheduled. I'm going to get everything kind of done uh, during those two days to see the people that I want to see. Uh, go go interact with the people I need to interact with, and, and pretty much get out. Andy, what are your thoughts on it? 
you know, it's funny. I, I pulled one of a, a buddy of mine, you know, said, hey, how much do you guys spend, right, to go to RSA and, and what's the outcomes, right? Because everything we do in business is right, about outcomes of value, right? So they spend $750,000 and they estimate they get 2,000 people come by their booths to scan their badges, right? Which really means you got 2,000 people that don't make decisions come take their free stuff, right? <laughs> Right. That's what that means, right? Right. right. And then they, and then at the end of the conference, they estimate they'll they get about four dinners out of it, right? So potentially you're spending seven hundred fifty thousand for four dinners, you know, with decision makers, right, around your product. Now the marketing officers of those companies that you know I've had conversations with say, well, we have to do it because if we're if we're not there, that means we're not relevant in the industry, right? I, I mean, personally, I don't think that's true. Right, I don't as a buyer of cybersecurity tools. Right, I don't look to see if they're at RSA or not. Um, but I just found it fascinating that the outcome um, that those marketing dollars are giving these companies is roughly four dinners and opportunities to sell their products. After yeah, that's a good point. You know, Andy, would you notice? I mean, George, Andy, like, would we even notice if someone wasn't there? It's so overwhelming. Like, let's just say, like, you know, Powerful Networks decides not to do it next next year, or Cisco, or whatever. Right? Would you even probably notice? I don't think I would. I would assume they're there somewhere. Yeah, because they're probably at a hotel. Like they probably <laughs> yeah. rented out a room, you know, a couple rooms or a suite in a hotel, and they've got a bunch but, of. But even, even if they did nothing, let's just say you yeah. completely boycott it, but don't tell anybody. I don't know if it'd be noticed anymore because I, I just assume everybody's there, and I probably wouldn't recognize. Like if, honestly, if I didn't see Microsoft there, like I'm talking big names, right? I probably would just assume they were there. If you ask me, I'd be like, yeah, they were there. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I was I was talking to a very very huge consulting firm. I won't name them, and I asked them about the the conference, and I said, "Well, last year we didn't go." And I go, "Why?" Because well, we don't need to go. We don't need to pay all that money to have four dinners or you know sit down. We don't you know we don't need to do that, and um, it's not going to make any difference on our brand name. I mean, they're out there; they're huge, right? Yeah. And so, um, but it's interesting. Uh, you know, some people see you know said something to him. They said, "Hey, look, you know, once you guys are at uh, RSA." Why don't, you know, and they kept, you know, he was kind of irritated by, uh, you know, people asking him, but um, to, I guess, Tom's point, there are so many people out there. I mean, it's hundreds, yeah. hundreds of people out there. Hundreds, right? Yeah, I mean, more than that, George. Thousands and tens yeah, of people. I mean, thousands. I think, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's huge, right? So you got to wonder, is it, is it worth all the money that these vendors are spending to, to attend the conference? And they're getting their return on their investment. I would say, Probably on uh, for the most part, I would say no. All right, from what I see, and that's the feedback that of people I talk to, and they just complain about it nonstop um, about you know the money that they have to spend to be there. But on the flip side of that coin, you know, to to your point, Andy, when you said, "Hey, look, it it actually hurts their brand if they're not there; they're irrelevant in the in the marketplace." How much of an impact does that have by not being there? Well, the, you know, the, the consulting company says that uh, it doesn't, you know, doesn't affect them at all. What do you think? I, I personally don't think it would affect them. I mean, look, they, I, I have probably a thousand invites to dinners or free passes to something, you know, <laughs> that I'm getting through LinkedIn on RSA leading up to this week, right? So there's multiple ways to, to try to have access to decision makers and buyers of their products without, you know, being at RSA. And so I, I think not being there doesn't actually hurt because it, ultimately this is a community of relationships, right? And, and you need to have access to the people that, you know, have those relationships. And so there's multiple ways to get access to people. So I don't think RSA is the only one, but I think um, any, anytime you can get a conference of like-minded people together to talk about the top issues, I think that's also a good thing. 
I think Andy, you're making a good point there. And it's not necessarily you need to be part of RSA anymore. You just, I, I think you can get more bang for your buck by doing something around RSA. Cause you, you have everybody coming in. Like, do you really want to spend the money to go on the floor or do you want to just spend the money? And you know, to your point, Andy, like be at a hotel somewhere, host a, some drinks, host a dinner, host something fun because then you're plugging in, you're getting those people around. But like to your point, I mean, RSA anymore, I don't even walk the floor anymore. I just don't do it. It's just not worth it to me anymore. You know, it's funny because, you know, I mentioned it earlier on in the segment that people go out there for a variety of different reasons. I think a lot of people just go out there for the party. Some of these guys, you know, they're not decision makers. They just go out there. A lot of these people, I mean, there's tens of thousands of people that, that attend this conference. And then, you know, you do have major corporations that go out there and just get a conference room all week, right? And they get all their vendors in there and they get all the vendors that they have relationships with. And it's time to catch up. It's time to ask questions. It's time to get clarity on things and also establish a way forward. And then there's they're sort of the forward-looking meetings, the people that they may be doing business with. So then there's their meetings. So I think, but they don't even attend the conference. They go there, they do, you know, they have these these sit-downs, uh, these marathon sit-downs, literally for hours and hours and hours. <coughs> but there's something to be said for that. Excuse me, there's something to be said for that, right? I mean, there is that face-to-face -face interaction that I think is beneficial, right? Um, then there's these vendors, they're giving out everything. Everyone's trying to get everybody's attention, right? It's because you're fighting for attention. So many of them out there, they're giving all kinds of goodies away, these trinkets, and you got coffee cups and beer mugs and all kinds of stuff, T-shirts. Um, but the thing that really makes me laugh a little bit is, and I, it, it leaves me a little perplexed, is the, the USB sticks that some of these vendors are giving out. I mean, you have all these security folks, you know, taking these foreign USB drives and plugging them into their computers, and then they execute God knows what on their systems. I mean, I, I understand that one of the vendors that seem to be successful at giving out a lot of USB sticks is Huawei. And I mean, you can't make that stuff up, right? I mean, they're in the news nonstop uh, for spying and all kinds of other uh, things they're getting indicted for. And, you know, they'd be out there handing out USB sticks and everybody's walking around plugging them into their, their computer systems. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing to me. I mean, Andy, considering the consortium of cybersecurity professionals that are attending this conference, tens of thousands of people, how much spying do you really think is going on out there? I think a fair amount. I mean, right, you're not just, look, I mean, you hear about targeting from, from nation states on LinkedIn, right, and, and seeing who's connected to who and, and, and using them to do attack pro, targeting attack packages. Uh, obviously, the human nature of that, right, gets extended into, you know, we have 45,000 cyber practitioners in, in such a close proximity to each other. Um, there's no doubt that, that that's happening there for sure. Hey Tom, what do you think? How, how bad do you think it is? Think these guys are out there sweeping their rooms? The people that are really aware, some of these intelligence guys, what you should do in the Secret Service, you know? Because look, you got to, you got to, you got to consider you know, from a foreign intelligence agency perspective when you're thinking about this. This is a prime target, right? I mean, this is where everybody's going. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, I tend to approach any security conference with caution. So Black Hat, DefCon, RSA. I think any security professional should just be smart. Don't bring sensitive information. Assume you will be targeted because of your position and just be aware. I don't know if you necessarily need to sweep a room and stuff because if you basically just say, hey, whatever, you know, I'm not going to bring sensitive data. A lot of the time you're not in your room a lot anyway at these conferences because you're, you're, you're doing so much and out so much. But again, you know, just being smart about it, you know, when you do, uh, especially Black Hat DEF CON, I think people are much smarter there. They know that to be careful there. I think we need to think of RSA the same way and just put in that bucket. Just be careful. Be smart. That's a good point. But, you know, you, you, people talk about Black Hat all the time. You know, don't turn on your phone. 
Yeah. You know, don't connect to the internet. You know? Yeah. <laughs> why, yeah. Why, why not? Why not that that way at RSA? Which you know, I mean, uh, what makes you think that the same people aren't doing that at, at RSA? Uh, exactly. And I, that's why I think you just got to assume they are. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think the difference guys, I think is pro- RSA is probably viewed more as a vendor driven, right. Versus a community practitioner driven environment. Right. You've got practitioners talking about the latest things that they broke into or, or in the research and figured out, you know, at the, the black hat DEF CON. And then you've got really more vendor type marketing around RSA. Um, so it's an interesting mindset, right? It's a good point to bring up for the folks, you know, attending, right? We need to start, we need to make sure you're thinking 24 seven security, right? Cause of the roles we have data access, the data we have, et cetera. And uh, honestly, yeah. if I, yeah, if I was going to attack right now, I would go after RSA because probably more decision makers will end up at RSA because those are the people who are actually looking at vendors. Uh, black hat DEF CON tends to be, uh, people who are actually practitioners and doing stuff. And I, I know it sounds weird, but That's I right. like, that's I'd rather right. I'd rather hack the CISOs. Yeah, right. yeah, right. yeah. yeah, I'd rather hack the CISO and the COO mm-hmm. or 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 the head person's info and, and hopefully get you know get their data, take them over, and possibly get more uh, ability to to do stuff in, within the company, right? As in, like maybe convince the CFO to send money, something like that, right? No doubt about it, man. I I think there's a lot more going on at RSA than people think, and it doesn't get enough attention about the security issues and I just, you know, I brought it up because of these, you know, this, this simple thing of these USB drives. I mean, I remember we used to do exercises and go around and drop them in the lobby of, you know, corporate headquarters you know, and see who grabs it and plugs it in. And then we have specific things on there that say, you know, that it would, you know, the Excel spreadsheets that say, Oh, here's all your, you know, uh, all the employee salaries. <laughs> and then they would hit that and it would all back to, you know, an IP address that, we controlled and we'd say, Hey, look, you know, why are you plugging foreign USB into our, into our systems, into our <laughs> yeah. networks? What's wrong? It was even, it was even you was in removable media anymore. Right. I mean, it's all cloud anyway. Right. So I mean, the fact that people are leaving them on their, 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 uh, their boots, right. It's a, it's a little even sus- suspicious, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, call it old school, but still, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, look, I just pulled up the cost and I, I don't know this year's cost, but last year's cost to set up a booth at the conference was about $130 per square foot. So if you're doing a 2020 uh, booth, right? Uh, about 400 square feet, I guess, right? 20 by 20, you're dropping like $52,000. I think that's, that sounds about right. And then you didn't even pay for anything else yet. And some of these booths are a lot bigger, I think. I think, you know, that's, they're, you know obviously they range in size. You, you rent by the square foot, uh, foot, but that's just buying square footage on the floor. I mean, you gotta travel. Hotel costs, dinners, events, you know, staff the booth. You got to get the props. You got to get, I mean, people are building like boxing rings and dancing bears and they're having virtual avatars here. It's crazy. It's crazy. There's an enormous cost for companies to get out there and attend this conference. So it's interesting to me, you know, how much someone's willing to spend. Now, all the startups are out there, Tom. I mean, you know, uh, do you think there? How much money do you think these startups are spending out there on these marketing budgets? I mean, they they, they don't have a lot of money, but they got they're, they're obviously there, and they're spending the money. I mean, they must go home afterwards with a big headache. I think if they're not really getting the bang for their buck. I think Andy made the the point already, and I think he's absolutely right. It's just so hard to know what your return is. I mean, like, yeah, you can say, well, we got four dinners out of it or something like that. But at the end of the day, you know, we don't know if not going there actually can hurt you. Does it make it look like you're having trouble? Are you, you know, does it, does it show signs of maybe financial uh, issues or something like that? So I, I am not sure on that. 
but I do think, again, you know, if you're a startup, maybe not do the booth. Maybe, you know, try to go up and, and host an event and, and invite targeted people, right? Make it something fun. Make it viral. You know, find, a, find something that people want to go to and then, you know, better money spent. Like you said, $52,000 to have a booth where a bunch of people come by and take your free stuff. You end up with four dinners out of it. Or would you rather spend... You know, it's to say the same amount of money, $52,000 to, to host a really crazy party right by there and invite, you know, a um, thousand people that you feel are, are, are real decision makers. And hopefully, you know, of the thousand, if, you know, uh, 250 show up and, you know, those 250 actually show up and talk to you and, and get to know you, you'll probably end up with a lot more dinners out of that, more, more follow-up, right? Yeah. So I've never been to an RSA conference outside the main conference here in the United States. Have you guys been to any of the conferences outside the United States? I did the Europe one. How about you, Andy? No, I haven't. Just to San Francisco. Yeah, I did Europe, and I feel like San Francisco is the mothership. That's the one you really, you know, if you're going to yeah. attend one, that's one to ten. I, I don't think I would travel to one for it. I was I was there for other business, and it was happening, so I went. Why is that? Uh, I mean, what's the culture like? like why, why wouldn't you suggest people travel to them? Uh, I just think because Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley. So I think this is, this is the large one. Now, if you're, if you're local there, I think it's not bad because you get to meet your, your contacts. But for me, being in Silicon Valley and then traveling to Europe, you know, not, not, as, not as effective. Like I don't need – I can see the same vendors here. Um, my contacts are here. Now, if you're a local to Europe, then it would be a good place to go. And if, if you're selling into Europe, it's a good place to go. So I, I think it's good for – your pockets, but I think everybody comes to the, to the San Francisco and this is where most of the headquarters are. This is where the startups are. This is where everybody is. So I think this is the larger one. If you're going to do one, this is the one to attend. So this is from a client or consumer perspective, which makes perfect sense, right? If you go to the one in California, you're probably not going to see anybody uh, somewhere else that you haven't seen in California, right? Everyone kind of goes to that one. But if you're, if you're going the opposite, if you're the, if you're the vendor, I mean, are you getting, you know, a different audience? And it's place. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth it as a vendor if you're going to go and, and you specifically are selling to Europe or, uh, you know, you're selling to the Middle East or you're selling to Asia, then, you know, do the European, the Middle East or the Asian conference because that's where you're going to get actually probably going to get more bang for your buck anyway there because it could be your network. But if you're just going to go and see one, um, you know, as a non-vendor, I, I would definitely recommend the mothership, the San Francisco one. Andy, you got any thoughts? I think it's interesting. You know, most of the startups that, that are outside of the U.S. that are incubated and founded outside of the U.S., like they, their markets aren't large enough to sustain and grow the size, level size of the business I think that they will ultimately want to reach, which is why they all end up opening up offices in, in North America, right? So I think, you know, Tom's right. Like if you're, you're, if you're local, you know, you're going to meet the right people. You might meet some people that can influence a decision, maybe introduce a product into a POC and get them you know, maybe to, to the CISO or CIO or CTOs, um, you know, on, on their desk. But I think that's why we, you know, we also see all these startups open up offices in the U.S. because they know the market's not large enough outside the U.S. All right, guys, we've got to transition here to a commercial break. But uh, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. 
I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes, and then we'll be right back to talk some more cybersecurity shop. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The rules of enterprise security have changed. Your employees work remotely. Their devices access corporate data in the cloud. Phishing and other threats are intensifying. Traditional perimeter-based security is no longer enough to keep your enterprise safe. You need a new approach that protects your organization from the outside in. Lookout Post Perimeter Security enables protection at the endpoint and establishes continuous conditional access to data based on risk so you can protect your mobile workforce against phishing and other new world threats. Now you can secure the post-perimeter world. Visit lookout.com forward slash task force seven to learn more today. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Reedus. 
If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with my guest hosts of TF7 Radio, Tom Pagler and Andy Vanillo. So, guys, interesting article last week in marketwatch.com by Wallace Witkowski. He was reporting that companies may be looking to artificial intelligence to fill the skills gap caused by the massive talent crisis in the cybersecurity industry. And there's going to be lots of talk this week about these types of technologies at the RSA conference. So the article pitted some of the industry's major powerhouses against each other, right? By He was referencing these recent announcements by Palo Alto Networks and Microsoft who are offering their new AI-branded services to address this lack of cybersecurity skilled workers, right? Uh, and also to address the growing number of cyber attacks, which that's obviously been the theme for years now. But Wodkowski then referenced in a statement in the article, he said, hey, look, Cisco Systems on Thursday uh, announced that the industry may be cooling down to these AI-powered cybersecurity models. And, uh, and here's what they're basing uh, that statement on. So even though there are about over 20 sessions in, in dealing with artificial intelligence at RSA this year, you know, if you count them up, in a survey of more than 3,000 security experts, two-thirds, that's about 66%, said that they would rely upon AI down from 74% who said they would back in 2018. So in my mind, not a massive number, right? It's down, you know, what is it, 8% here, right? But uh, Tom, you know, the confidence in AI-powered cybersecurity seems to be trending downward, at least for the moment. What do you make of it? Oh, I think it's all hype. I don't think AI actually exists. Right. I think it's just data analytics and automation that we, we put together. I mean, I think true AI where artificial intelligence as in a machine is going to make a decision that it's trained itself to learn is not going to come from the cybersecurity world. It's going to come from a life and death industry such as automated first. Like it's going to be something where cars are going to learn to drive on the road and not hit and kill people. And that is where we're going to actually, you know, adapt into AI. And then that will be applied to, to cybersecurity. So the fact that, you know, these companies are saying we have AI, 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 they're actually doing a disservice and they're making it so it's not interesting. It's just I not here think yet. None of these people really have that capability at all. <clears throat> no. And it's not artificial intelligence. It's just great data analytics. It's taking data together and it's, you know, tweaking it and making it work as though it's a, a decision being made by the computer. It's not a decision made by the computer. It's taking data sets and trends and, and putting um, basically processes in place to automate and do things. It's just, it's kind of like advanced automation, but it's not, it's not artificial intelligence. It's not the computer making the decision we did not teach it to make yet. Well, I mean, if that's the case, it sounds like a lot of voodoo talk. I mean, Andy, you got lots of like, operations experience. I mean, do you think these large Fortune 500 companies are ready to trust their networks and their data security to these AI solutions if they even exist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, I mean, like if we go back to the RSA example, right? I mean, you know, AI is going to certainly be the, the main, one of the main buzzwords that come out of the conference, I would think. Um, just like, you know, um, security analytics was, you know, a couple years ago, right? And so, you know, in the operations space, at least in, in cybersecurity, right, I feel like we're still trying to really get our head around leveraging analytics, advanced analytics um, in a really mature way. And, and, and to be able to 
fully understand what these attacks look like, um, you know, and how they would impact each customizable network, um, I think is the challenge. Like, what is that attack going to look like in your environment, right? And so there's certainly a need, right, conceptually, but I think companies are still, you know, struggling with, you know, really advanced IT. Um, so I think you could maybe see AI play a better role in the networking space. Um, but I think, you know, as we start to grow on the cybersecurity space to take actions, right, you know, you know that could impact uh, data integrity and you know, the CIA stuff, right? So I think it's going to take a little while for companies to feel comfortable with it. So Microsoft's, you know, touting last week, and I'm sure they're going to be at the RSA conference talking about uh, the Azure Sentinel product that they just came out. It's their first native security information and event management uh, tool with a, within a major cloud platform. And Ian Johnson, their head of Microsoft Cybersecurity Group out there, said that the early adopters of Azure Sentinel uh, have reported up to a 90% reduction of alert fatigue. So this is where already stressed cybersecurity workers find themselves chasing what proves to be these false alarms, right? A lot of false positives out there. And then the, the threat hunting times uh, that she claims that used to take hours have been reduced to seconds in, in, in her statement. So... Andy, false positives, still a big problem in socks. I mean, hunting reduced to seconds. What do you think? I th yeah, it's still a major, major problem, right? And, and, and I think that alert fatigue is, is real, right? People in our profession, right, we, we, we run to the next fire, right? And so, you know, every time there's another alert and, and we think it's real right, and you have to spend a ton of time dealing with something that ends up being nothing, right? Um, you, you almost become desensitized to what is real. Right, and, and you don't want to lose that sense of urgency um, that you want to have if something is really real and you need to trigger and go. Um, and so, I, I think it's great that it, look if you look at a sock, right? A sock is you know presumably what happens when security fails, right? You see things, you should be seeing things that are uh, what, when things get through, right? Um, and, and then if you take um, you know a, a software you know provider like Microsoft that, that should know how things should operate. In, in its environment, right, even though obviously in the cloud, it's your environment also, um, you know, those two com combined can make a really powerful, com uh, you know, combination. I mean, especially I think in the insider threat, when, when you get into domains like that and you have this security operation set up and you have these instances where you're trying to get rid of these false positives, I think the insider threat is an area where you're going to see a lot of false positives if you really don't tune in those policies and understand uh, your threat environment and you do a lot of risk prioritization. Um, and, and, you know, these types of tools can certainly help. I mean, Tom, what do you think about the threat hunting being reduced to seconds? Does that, I mean, it sounds great. I, I think that, no, I think this is, uh, again, you know, great analytics and automation. And I think when you get into a cloud environment that can take rules uh, across the board and, and help you reduce white noise because they have a huge uh, data set that they're looking at, that's great. Um, will they replace humans yet? No, I don't think so. Uh, it still takes a lot of time to fine tune and ensure everything's working properly. But yes, I think any reduction, uh, you know, to Andy's point, uh, is is great. I mean, you you just you want to make sure that they can respond to the things that are important. You can rule out the things that um, are identified pretty quickly as uh, you know false positives or just just areas that you shouldn't respond to. Uh, again, I don't think it's AI. I just think it's a advanced. Uh, uh, data a very large data set with a very advanced uh, uh, ability to analyze 
Yeah, I'll be honest. Like, I'm really big, you know, on. I'm really interested to see where like the simulated attack space goes. Right, we've got known attacks out there that we can simulate and run in a production environment, and that can tell you whether or not is your sim configured properly or your rules implemented properly across the entire stack. You know, and then you know how can you minimize your attack surface from known attacks right away? I mean, I think it's a little reactive, right? But I think. Um, I'm really interested to see where that space goes uh, and then how that could impact, you know, what, what, you know, machine learning AI decisions would need to be made, um, you know, because they're not based on um, all the attacks that are out there, right? You know, when I look at these hunting teams out there and some of these other companies, I don't really feel like they're, they're, you know, built right. I, I don't feel like they're resourced properly. I don't think it's the right mix of automation and, and, and human interaction. I mean, because when I think about hunting and I think about you know, the, the, what they're supposed to do in their mission, I mean, if we could just automate every, everything, it wouldn't be a special hunting team. And I think if you're just hunting for things, you know, proactively looking for things that, that you can automate to look for, then that's not really what a hunting program should do. I think, you know, in my mind, there has to be a proper balance of, okay, these are the things that the hunter needs, right? This is the information that they need to collect. And you could use a variety of different forensic tools and endpoint tools and, and, and a variety of different things in your SOC to actually ga gather that data automatically. But at some point, having eyes on glass and having a human being look for those anomalies and operating systems that are currently there, our tools will not find, to me, that's real hunting, right? Having that sort of uh, human brain behind it, not, to, not a computer. I mean, well, what do you think? I mean, people structuring these hunting activities properly or... I, I think it's an art, right? I mean, I th you know, so, so some of it is structure, but I think some of it is setting up the environment and the culture to allow people to, you know, be as creative and think as evil as possible within. There's, I, I, I tell my team, you only have two things that hold you back, right? Criminal law, right? And the code of conduct. Outside of that, be as creative as you can be, right? Because our adversaries are. Right. And so yeah, you gotta remember too, I mean, a lot of people get freaked out because, you know, they think that all oh, these guys are out there hacking systems. No, they're looking at your own systems. That's right. And they're trying I to mean, think, like, I mean, trying to think the way bad guys think, right? Yeah, exactly. That's right. So you got to give them the flexibility and the freedom to do it. Obviously, there's a tool component to that, right? Um, but really, it's around, so, so having a structure, you know, you've got the minor attack framework and some other things, right? But I think, you know, giving them the flexibility to be creative and think evil, right? Like, uh, like um, our adversaries do, I think is the best way to try to counter that. Well, here's the problem I think too. I think, you know, a lot of people, uh, the, this skill set it, it, it is hard to find. And, and the reason it's hard to find because you find it from people who have been in offensive operations that usually just come from the military. You can get those guys uh, that come on the team. People, again, executives sort of freak out. Oh, we got these guys doing offensive operations. And that's not really what they're doing. Okay. They're looking at your own systems. They're not looking at anyone else's systems and they're doing things in a different way than you're used to doing them. And I think that makes people nervous. And then by the way, if you don't be, if you're not real careful and you have these guys sniffing around production systems, they can make a big mistake and cause, you know, a huge error. And then, you know, your butt's on the line. Tom, what do you think? So I actually take a different approach. Uh, I actually encourage my entire team to be uh, hunters. So what we do is we take like uh, days, weekends, sometimes a week, 
and we decide that we're going to go and try to hunt in a specific area. So we'll have someone who's kind of the lead, like you said, to make sure we don't mess anything up. So there's someone who's going to just make sure we don't go somewhere we shouldn't go or you know, take out production systems. A lot of times we try to do it in test anyway, stuff like that. But the idea is I want people who maybe haven't done it before to help and look at it because I want people looking different ways. So we'll say, hey, you know what, this Thursday, Friday, maybe we're going to just take, a, you know, maybe half a team or something like that. We're going to go attack, you know, this, this certain thing and just see what we can go find. Is there something that, you know, <clears throat> is there a system that's, you know, uh, in there that we should have decommissioned a long time ago? Is there, is there a port that's open? Is there this, is there that? Try different things. You know, maybe somebody will even try doing some phishing attacks, you know, LinkedIn profiling, whatever, and, and, and start doing it. The nice thing about that is uh, we also get some of the uh, engineers uh, who actually aren't security engineers. We, we will bring them in to do the hunting with us. They learn that this is what we're thinking to attack them, and they also kind of start thinking about attacking themselves. And then they basically learn, oh, so this is how I get attacked. So when I'm developing this and coding this, I better not do this because it's going to end up, you know, uh, losing, the, losing the system. And it's funny because we talk about automation. This is the time where I don't like automation. This is when we go in there kind of hunting without automation to figure it out. And then when we realize where an issue is, we take that knowledge and we put it into an automated system. So we say, okay you know, we, we consistently found, I don't know, this port open. We consistently found this, this system that was doing this. That's what we then put into an automated system. But the hunting, we don't use automation for. That's what we learn and kind of dig. And, and like you said, think outside the box, try something different. Yeah, there's that, there's that planning component, right, to the hunt, right? Yeah. You want to give the, time, the team enough time to, to plan. Yeah, exactly. That's a huge, it. yep. Right. And then, uh, you know, the, like the mention, Tom, like the, the feedback, right? Once we find it, you know, how pervasive is it? Or is it not, right? I mean, it's also good to celebrate the yeah. win. Like, hey, we looked for it and we can't find it. And then, then you've got to make a decision, right? Is there some other information out there that makes you think, well, maybe we need to bring in a third party to double check, right? Based upon the set of circumstances. But I, I like that, yeah. Yeah, and also just looking at hunting, not always, uh, you know, sometimes we're going to get something, but sometimes hunting is not just about finding something, it's about learning to try to find something, right? And it's, it's that whole benefit of that. Yeah, so there's that, there's that learning piece of it, you're right. There's a learning piece of it, and you take those learnings and if you implement that into your execution, your operations, then you're getting better and better all the time. And I agree with that, and I also, look, I, I just don't understand why some of these people set up these hunting teams and basically try to automate everything. That's not a hunting team. Um, and, uh, you know, to your point, Tom, I, uh, you know, that this is one piece of, of your operation where, you know, you auto, only want to automate those uh, data pieces that the, the person needs to, the hunter needs to do to do his job. You know, outside of that, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to, uh, to start automating the whole process. Otherwise, you really don't need the team. You just go ahead and conduct your scans and find your vulnerabilities. So, now, um, a lot to be talked about. I think we should do probably like even a lot more on the hunting, maybe even get some guys in here that do this for a living because I think there's a big misconception in the industry about how to really do this the right way. Um, you know, and getting back to this article too, this article sort of goes off on a little bit of a tangent at, at one talking point about the, the need for consolidation of solution sets across the industry. So you can't talk about RSA without talking about the frustration around how many people or vendors are out there and the confusion about who you should talk to and, you know, who are the people that can actually help you with your problems? So this is a huge topic. And we mentioned it, uh, you know, before uh, about the amount of vendors in the marketplace. And there was hundreds, maybe even thousands of, of these people out there you know, in any other segment of the show. But Wodkowski notes that there's a Cisco report out there that indicates the notion of consolidation is gaining even more steam, right? And 
I think people might be, you know, dreaming a little bit about what, you know, it would do if their life was easier in my mind, right? So the, the Cisco has a report that noted that 63% of responding CISOs said that they had whittled down the number of vendors they deal with to 10 or less compared with 54% in 2017. Now, Tom, I, I, I don't know, uh, you know, what your thoughts are on this. Uh, we haven't spoke about it, you know, before the show, but I know one thing, when you're dealing with these large networks and these companies with hundreds of thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of endpoints, is it even remotely possible, <laughs> remotely possible to get your vendor list down to 10? I, I think that this is something many CISOs have to, you know, think about, right? Do I go with uh, one vendor or, you know, a small amount of vendors who say they can do it all, and then I kind of have one throat to choke, right? So if it goes wrong, you're the one responsible, you promised me to do this stuff. But when you do that, they can't be the expert in everything. So you're giving up the best in breed. So I actually, what I'm seeing lately is the good CSOs are moving to more of like open source tools and are, are like review, like they're bringing all of this stuff in themselves. They're, they're taking it in. They're understanding they can see their source code. So then they're not actually getting reliant on vendors. They're actually learning to do stuff themselves. They're using something that's open source that everybody's using. If there's a vulnerability that a vendor would have, let's say I was reliant on a vendor that it, I can't see the source code, and they say, oh, you know, now we have an issue, I have to rely on them to patch that, fix it, get it back to me. If it's open source, I have the source code. I can start working on it myself, patch it, fix it, and actually push it out there for other people. So I, I think, you know, to your point, yes, there's like consolidation is something that the big companies want to push because if you're a big company, of course, you want more people to come to you. But I think consolidation is not a good thing. But again, CISOs have to look at that. Um, sometimes if you're coming into a new shop, trying to clean it up quickly, you might not want to bring a bunch of different things. You might not want to go open source, have to learn the expertise around it. But as you become better and better and know your network, you should start going into the best in breed, understanding your stuff yourself, and get to the point where, you know what, I run my stuff myself and my team does, and we're good at it. So, Andy, you know, I, you know, I, I think about the number of vendors that these, these large companies are using, and it's not even close to 10. It's more like dozens and maybe even hundreds at some point. So to get to 10, I mean, are, 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 is, this, uh, is this just uh, just a dream? Or is this, you know, people actually going to, you know, sort of <laughs> wish us there to 10? I mean, it, certainly there are systems out there that have 10. And like I said before in other episodes, not, not all systems have the same size of organization, of course, right? Um, there has to be someone in charge, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're even close to having the same uh, the size, scope, and responsibility, tack vector, than other CISOs have, right? And I think the way the infrastructure was built, the way the tools were built, the way there are apps were built, you know, Tom mentioned the sort of the movement to open source, that's a little bit of a change right now, but I don't know if that even allows us to think to get to a 10 vendor solution. What do you think? Man, it really, it's so dependent on each company and their environment, right? Some companies, you know, in the startup world, it's easier to kind of say, hey, we're going to start out in an open source world, incubate and develop, maybe bring in some, some sure. niche startups with, you know, that solve some, you know, specific problems. And large companies who are built out of acquisition and you're doing big M&A and they've got, you know, multiple tools and vendors when you acquire them, you've got to then shrink it down. I think, you know, one of the things I think could happen to get the vendor um, for, for mid to large size companies outside of use it, leveraging open source would be, you know, leveraging large consulting firms that are spending the time with all the vendors researching them. Um, you know, and then you've got to make sure you've got the right, you know, vendor management wrapped around that. Um, you know, I think that that's it. If you had to get down to 10, right. If you had to, like if you had a, a mandate from the board that says we're only going to deal with 10, I think you'd start to see, um, 
you know, that shrink down with probably security services consumed through large consulting firms. How many people don't have that vendor management team that you called it? Like most people have these innovation teams now, right? So you have an innovation team that basically the innovation team is the people that are responsible for going out there and making sure they know the solution sets, they have the relationships, they know the emerging technologies that can be used in the security uh, in the security world, but how many, you know, when a company doesn't even have that team, how, how, you know, behind the eight ball are they, Tom? I mean, forget about it. I mean, you know, you're going out to RSA, you don't even know, know where to go, right? Yeah, no, I think it's unrealistic, right, if you don't have that. So, yeah, exactly. But I think it's, you know, it's not, it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, you know, the bigger companies have these innovation teams. I don't think mid-sized companies have them. I don't think it's commonplace where you have the resources you need to actually evaluate everything. And by the way, from, you know, uh, uh, from a vendor, you know, standpoint, when you think about the vendor responsibility of consolidating all these things, uh, all these solutions and across the board, I'm not sure that, you know, these vendors have the bandwidth or the capital to be all things to everybody, right? And they, they don't have maybe the skill set either. Sometimes when I sit down and I talk to vendors and they're trying to do, you know, three different things uh, at once and they're trying to include everything in the solution set, I think it gets really convoluted. It gets more complex. It makes it harder for them. And by the way, not everybody has $560 million to go out and buy Demisto. Yep. Right. Right. Well, I think honestly to your point, George, though, is uh, I don't think you need to think about consulting vendors. What we need to do is just keep looking at industry standards that exist, right? So there's PCI for credit cards, there's SOC 1 and 2, there's ISO 2701. If you can align to these standards, then that's actually good because you're going to say, okay, so I'm not saying this, like the standards are, are the answer and you do these things, you check these boxes, you're fine. But the point is that you, you're, you're at a baseline with what everybody else is doing. You have somebody independently looking at your controls. And then if you think about too, if, if you look for like someone with a mature risk management profile, so they kind of understand what their top risks are, they kind of put a plan in to, to address those risks. And then they understand their infrastructure and they have good practices, and they do have independent certificates, then you start to say, okay, they're, they're, they're good. They're in a good spot, right? Everybody gets, has issues, but they know how to respond to their issues. They know how to prioritize their issues, and they have tools in place. If you just say everybody go get the same vendor, what happens if one of those vendors messes up or has an issue that everybody goes down? Uh, I agree, but I think there's vendors out there that understand that this is a competitive advantage if they can get there. Agreed. And there's people like Palo Alto that are buying these companies because they know, they know that when they can put this solution set together as a, as a, as a sort of a, a, a group, um, I can solve multiple problems at once. If you just have to deal with one person, you know, I think they know that that's very attractive to people. So you have people out there, companies out there that have the cash, you know, like Fortinet and Palo Alto and others who can do this, but not everyone can do it. And I think that really leaves some of these, the smaller and even mid-sized companies obviously at a disadvantage. So there's, there's other reports coming out of uh, RSA that uh, Trend Micro said on Tuesday that attacks that capitalize on the human desire to respond to urgent requests from authority are skyrocketing, right? And that the business email phishing attempts are up 269% compared with 2017. So that's a, that's a huge you know, number. So we talked about some reports before and there was a differentiation at Delta of like 8%. This is 269% increase in email phishing scams. And people are terrified of getting in trouble. They're terrified. And of course, we're always pounding at them, you know, speed, 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 agility. It's important. You know, we need to be fast. We need to be quick. We need to make decisions. Uh, you know, no one can sit around and vacillate about things. We need to, you know, make decisions and, and mitigate risk. And we've been emphasizing this, I think, uh, 
across the board in a lot of different places, especially in the cybersecurity space. Now, the criminals, I think they see this, right? They know this to be the case, and they're smart, and they're trying, like, how to capitalize on it. Andy, what do you think? I mean, there's no shortage of it, George, right? I mean, we see it, you know, constantly, right, in the industry, and it's always talked about, right? I think, you know, look, there's, there's, there's a whole stack related to that, right? I mean, you've got to have the right training in place and awareness of people that understand, like, what do the emails look like? What are the latest threats? So you've got to have a strong security awareness program, number one. Right. You've got to be, have the right policies and procedures in place so people understand that you know, security culture is important. Um, but I think you know, as it relates to coming from executives, right, of course, everyone wants to make sure they're as responsive as, as, pos- as possible to, to their boss and their boss's boss, the CEO, et cetera. Um, but there's also that, that targeting of, of that group also. So um, it's not going to stop. It is the, you know, obviously human nature is the easiest thing. And then when we start talking about targeted attacks and doing research on people, right, we there's so much out there on, in, on individuals to be able to craft a very specific email to get them to do the tr- to trigger the click or to respond in a way that's uh, to get a piece of information that the, the adversary would want. Tom, do we need to go out and really emphasize with employees uh, with, with, with a, I guess, a greater emphasis than we've been doing today, slow it down, read the email and go through the training for every single email that you get to make sure that, you know, you're not getting this, this phishing email. I mean, this has been a, a problem for quite some time. Um, I don't know. What's the solution or one of the most aggressive attack vectors used by cyber organized crime today? What do we do? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is, you know, I mean, like Andy said, it's a layered approach. You got you to gotta encourage and train employees, right? And I think you need to reward employees, those who identify things. And, and you got to set an example like, hey, this person did good and make it, make it something so, hey, I, I found some kind of email that was bad and I reported it. I get something good out of it or some recognition. I also think you have to do technical things such as like DMARC, SPF, DKIM. You got to set those up. So therefore, you're not getting any emails coming in that are, are not um, – uh, do not have the proper certificate and then vice versa, your company emails are not going out and becoming part of uh, a fish campaign uh, because you are, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're signed up for DMARC, SPF and DKIM. Therefore, anybody in that network, you're not getting these uh, bogus emails coming in. So I think you have to go with the standard technical stuff in there as well. And then also I think you have to start planning ahead that everyone is going to get fished at some point and you just got to start segregating duties. You got to add checks. And I think that honestly, YubiKeys, the, the final Alliance is a great thing. I mean, it requires a hardware tap on top of a password. So I think just doing those kind of things, the layered approach, right? So trained employees who look for it and report it and feel good about it. Technical solutions that make it so it's, it's difficult to get the spam in and out. And then, uh, you know, just basically segregation of duties and, and checks and balances on top of that is the best approach you can do. How about this, guys? Employers are starting to sue their employees in some parts of the world for falling victim to phishing attacks that cause harm to their company. So I've been seeing this. I saw a couple different articles out there. I've been reading about it. Just one example, according to today's LegalCyberRisk.co, a woman is being sued for sending approximately $250,000 of her employer's cash to an online fraudster. So this, this woman, Patricia Riley, who was working for the UK People's Media Group, fell for a CEO fraud scam where the criminal sent her these emails pretending to be her boss, right? And so this lawsuit alleges that Mrs. Riley ignored a warning from bankers about con artists tricking employees into making payments to companies. Hey, just so you know, 
you know, there's guys out there that want to, you know, that want to commit fraud against you, just so you know, be careful what you're doing. Miss Riley was giving evidence on the third day of the proceedings at the highest civil court in Edinburgh after winding its way through the lower courts. I'm trying to find out exactly what happened with this case because, you know, there's, I, I think there's another case in Australia as well. I guess she handed over about, you know, 193,000 pounds of the company's money to these fraudsters. And it came to light uh, a few days later when one of the colleagues of hers logged into the firm's online bank account and noticed that, you know, there was some money missing. And, uh, you know, and so it went downhill from there. I mean, Tom, how about this? You know, this sounds, this sounds oh, crazy, right? I, I think this is an absolute horrible practice. And I <laughs> hope and pray she countersues them for not having a safe work environment. I mean, honestly, like that is a failure of that company to properly train and educate and, and put the correct safety precautions in place for that employee. It would be the same thing if like I was at work and someone came in, like let's say I'm a bank teller and someone robs a bank and I get injured and then they, and then they say, well, you shouldn't have you know, been standing there and, and gotten injured, right? No, BS, you didn't have a safe work environment. You didn't properly train me for when someone armed robs me, right? You know, too bad. So I hope, I hope she countersues and I hope that they shut this down because this is a horrible, horrible practice and this should not continue. Andy, so Andy, you, you get fooled by a phishing scam, you lose your job, you lose your livelihood. I don't know, maybe there's other repercussions, financial situations, you could have financial pressures, you could, maybe your kids, uh, you have to take your kids out of college, you might lose your house. Then your employer sues you. <laughs> and you know, possibly get wiped out depending on you know, what your situation is. I mean, 250,000, quarter of a million dollars. Quarter of a million dollars is not pocket change, that's not a bar bill, right? This <laughs> is, it's out of control, right? There's no way. You know, any employee is going to ever want to, you know, respond to an email ever again, right? If this were to uh, to actually come to fruition, right? So right. I, I think, you know, the, you know, the cascading effects of this obviously are, are not not positive. Um, How many employees do you see right now forwarding these emails to their bosses? Hey, uh, you want me to respond to this? Right, exactly. Would cease uh, uh, cease to exist because the risk would be too great for them personally. So uh, this has got to stop. All right. All right, folks, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back to talk some more cybersecurity shop after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. 
Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with my guest host of TF7 Radio, Tom Pagler and Annie Benillo. So, guys, everyone's freaking out over in Thailand about this new law. And uh, it's all over the papers. It's all over the Internet. And, uh, and I'm just wondering if other countries are going to follow suit. So here's what's going down. And I think, obviously, there are other Asian countries that have, you know, had similar laws, uh, implemented similar laws to this already. But here, here, here's what's going down. If you had a chance to, to read this article, folks, check it out. Uh, it's a March 1st, 2019 article in, in, in Reuters titled Thailand Defends Cybersecurity Law Amid Concerns Over Rights Abuse. And uh, this stuff is really disconcerting, man, if you're, especially if you're a citizen in a free country like we are. I mean, this stuff, it, it, you know, it, it, uh, it, it's, it's definitely disconcerting. I think um, when I see this, I, I, you know, it makes me think back to uh, some of the privacy issues that we have here and, and you know, in the battle that we're going, that's going on. And where, and where that's going. And I think when people see this kind of thing happening over in another country, they get real defensive. They get real defensive. So here's what, here's what it is. If you, haven't, if you haven't read it already, folks, Thailand passed this new controversial law last week that basically asserts government control over the Internet and allows them to seize any data or information associated with the Internet. Specifically, this act permits the National Cybersecurity Committee, led by Thailand's military, to summon individuals for questioning and enter private property without court orders in case of actual or anticipated serious cyber security threats. So this is another branch of government now that can search and seize data and hardware without a warrant if confronted with such a threat. And Thailand also unanimously passed the second law, the Personal Data Protection Act, which regulates all companies that collect data on individuals in Thailand. So there was this general freak out by consumers worldwide about these new laws and the fact that they were, you know, word that the wording used in these, these this legislation really seems to be very broad, overly broad in some respects, um, and, and very surprising. And, and, you know, obviously it can't be a mistake. It's just so broad, some of the language they use. 
And experts are arguing that just vague language of the laws could still be allowed, you know, for broad, uh, could be allowed for broad interpretations of actions that, uh, that authorities could perform, which may end up on infringing on people's constitutional rights in that country. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So almost immediately, almost immediately, there was this outcry from, from rights groups and internet users all over the world who are really concerned about individual freedoms and privacy and, and government surveillance of citizens. And the activists calling the legislation the cyber martial law, right? That, you know, people would have to sacrifice their privacy and the rule of law and warning that compliance burdens could drive foreign businesses out of Thailand. So here we're, here's what we're talking about now, maybe over-compliance, over-regulation, that type of thing. Of course, you know, the Thailand Secretary of the Ministry of Digital Economy and Society, a, a government representative basically stated that the concerns by these privacy activists and others aren't warranted and that uh, they've made sure that it would not allow for a violation of individual rights and arbitrary use of power, and the law will not be used to regulate social media or computers or devices belonging to the people. Now, I've read, you know, sort of excerpts of that law. Doesn't sound that way to me. This sounds like, you know, hey, my name's Johnny Jones. I work from the government, and I'm here to help you. I mean, that's what that sounds like. It sounds like, you know, a nightmare. Tom, what do you think? I mean, this law absolutely allows the Thai government to police the internet. But I, I do think some of this is from the other segments we've had of shows where we're seeing more and more cyber attacks. We're seeing that, you know, attacks on our own um, infrastructure or, you know, areas of social media, stuff like that. We're saying that might be impacting our elections and stuff like that. So I think we're going to see more and more of this countries that will say, you know what, let's put some serious draconian, rules in place that we can clamp down if we need to. So do I trust it at all? If I was a Thai citizen, no. Do I think it's going to be bad for business there? Absolutely. But do I think we're going to see more and more of this happening until we can figure out how to have better cybersecurity, cyber response? Absolutely. So do I trust it? Nope. Is it bad? <laughs> yes. Uh, or is it going to hurt business? Yes. But we're going to see more of it? Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I think I think other countries in Asia will follow suit. I mean, I think, you know, you've seen the regulatory, you know, environment in, in Asia PAC, you know, heat up and, and get more engaged. Um, you know, I, I think there's an education that still has to happen, right? You know, I think some of the requests that I, I, I've seen come across, you know, my desk, um, it's not clear that the regulators in, in Asia PAC, you know, specifically know what they're asking for. So there's a, I think as this is being rolled out and implemented, hopefully there's some, some room to educate folks on what they're really asking for and the impacts of, of, of the broad language that they put in there. Yeah, I think what this, this is what scares people. And this is why when you, you know, not to draw a direct parallel because it's really not the same thing and it's not apples to apples, right? But this is why companies and consumers in the United States are so hell-bent on making sure that we don't give up the keys to our encryption to the government, right? No one wants the government snooping around in your business, you want, you, you, you want that, that right to privacy. And I could just imagine that if everything that everybody did on the internet at all times was always accessible by, by, by the government and the country that you live. I mean, and obviously a lot of people live in that environment today. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure they don't spend any time, <laughs> you know, don't really do anything on the internet. But uh, I mean, it seems to me you give up a little privacy, you get a step closer to losing all your rights, Tom. Well, I think it's exactly why companies protect the keys, right? We saw it with right. Apple, we see it with others. If you hand, hand them over at all, or ability to access the data that you try to protect 
um, where does it stop? So it's that slippery slope. As soon as I, you know, if I, if I go to the steps to ensure privacy for my consumers, but at the end of the day, they know there's a backdoor that I can still get to the data and give the data to the government, then you'll never trust it, right? So I, I think that's why we see that. Andy, any final thoughts? Hey, look, we, we saw the bad guys take those steps, right, to compartmentalize themselves and keep themselves and their networks, you know, private, you know, secure and amongst themselves, right? So I think you're going to start to see, um, you know, maybe private networks that would allow that same thing for, for consumers. All right, guys, good talk. We're over. We're way over. So we're going to shut it down for today. I appreciate you guys coming on and hanging with me, man. Thanks. Thank you. You know, it was a pleasure. Thanks. All right, folks, we're learning a lot about this show and how we're going to structure the show in the future. I mean, it's come, you know, the, the evolution of the show is changing all the time. And, and, you know, we're tossing about a whole bunch of different ideas, including having open monologues and then maybe having a guest and mixed with panels on the third. You know, we're talking about video a lot with the producers over Voice America. Um, they love what we're doing, uh, maybe going live episodes, major events. So, you know, maybe banging out some Facebook live stuff. I mean, just, just there's a lot of stuff that's on the table. We're trying to decide how to move forward very carefully. Um, and it's a, it's a slow process, but, the, you know, the show is just getting a, a, a great response. And I really appreciate each and every one of you. Thanks for listening to us. I really appreciate it, folks. But for now, we've got to bounce up out of here. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CS. HUB.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.